This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. Long before the Here Comes Diggins call by Chad Salmella at this year's Olympics, he was known throughout the ski world as an athlete and sports commentator. In what now may be considered his spare time, Salmella is a running coach at the College of St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota, and the voice of Nordic Sport for NBC for this upcoming season's World Cup cross-country ski events and IBU World Cup biathlon events. We spoke to Salmella last month for the podcast before his commitments with NBC Sports began. We'll start with Selmela talking about growing up as one of five kids in the household. I was the second oldest kid of five kids. I grew up on the Iron Range of Minnesota. Um, my dad was, an, is, was and still is an architect. Um, he got hired in, we skied, we kind of skied as a family. We were, you know, we're 100% Finnish, so we skied as kids. It was kind of a family thing to do. And, um, and my dad got us on skis when we were young. I was probably skiing when I was two. But I really was kind of a chubby uh, grade schooler and was enjoyed being sedentary. I was always fast. You know, I could run across the gym faster than anybody in my little class. I mean, we were from a really small hamlet. Um, so I always felt like I was, you know, a quick, a quick kid, but I was, I got, I got into like watching, uh, syndicated shows like the Munsters and the Andy Griffith show after high, after, after school every day and eating Cheetos or whatever my mom would let me snack on. And I got a little, and I think I, I'm, I'm pudgy by nature. I mean, I think I always have been. It's not like I could be really fit and trim really easily. So as a kid, I was a little bit pudgy. And then my brother got it. I would like to ride my BMX bike around the dirt mining roads around our home. We lived right by the biggest open pit mine in the world at the time. And uh, so I, I was, I was not a very active kid. I kind of knew I could be, I could be athletic at a young age, but um, then my, you know, my brother, I rode my BMX bike around and then my brother got into bike touring and then bike racing, road bike racing. And, that, and that's kind of where it all, I, I started really competing as I competed, I think from age, I think 11 to 13 as a road bike racer, just kind of citizen races. And we tried some UC, USCF racing early on in our careers, but we didn't really like that in Minnesota. And, and then I, I skied the, um, I think I first race I ever skied was a 32 kilometer Vossalope in Mora, Minnesota at the age of 11. And I think I got beat, but yeah, I think I got beat by like an hour in my age group. And I think I was fifth or sixth in my age group. And I, and I determined after that. So I think I was 11 and determined, okay, I'm going to win the 11 to 12 age group category the next year. And I did, I, I started skiing and, and uh, my brother kind of got me into it a little bit. And, and that was the start. I, 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 I won this huge trophy to this day. It's probably the biggest trophy I've ever won. I was 12 years old and I ski, had to ski 32 K for it. <laughs> now is that on like on a mantle anywhere or is it like have dust on it up in the attic? It's somewhere. I think it's packed in a box probably in my stuff somewhere. And I haven't, if you have, if you press me to find it within an hour, I don't think I could. So that was, that, that was kind of the impetus. And then, and then one, one really major thing happened and um, there was a there was a bankrupt alpine ski resort in Bowabic, Minnesota, called Giants Ridge, that the IRRRB, the Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation Board, bought that that venue, and you know they wanted to make it world class at something. The IRRRB did, and um, they realized it wasn't a big enough hill to have you know to bring in international competitions in in alpine skiing. So they 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 brought in Al Merrill who. who 
is very famous for it. He did the trails on that Lake Placid and I think in Calgary. He's an East Coaster coach at Dartmouth for a lot of years. Al, they hired Al to design the trail at Giants Ridge, and it, and it became kind of like the it place for Nordic skiing in the 80s and early 90s. And I I lived 30 miles from Bowabek, and that's kind of where I got into competing and you know started doing J, what we called JOQs back then. And uh, I was I was one of the top kids in the in the upper midwest for my age off and on depending on how i was skiing and uh, i found my way into biathlon at 19 and uh they well at 16 i tried it and by 19 they were looking for they hired walter pickler from germany who was an olympic bronze medalist and um i got talent id'd sort of and they kind of put me on the national team as a youngster and that's kind of where my ski career kind of took off so you are also a longtime coach and um I'd like you to tell tell folks where you're based. And I know recently you transitioned from uh, cross-country ski coach to, I believe, uh, cross-country running coach. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, your past as a ski coach and kind of what made you transition into like, I'm going to give up the ski ski coaching gig for a bit? Yeah. So um, I... I didn't really know I was going to be a coach, but I got tapped to be a coach right out, right when I quit. I, I retired after not making the 98 team for the Olympic team, which, I, you know, in my mind, I definitely should have been, should have made it. And I didn't, and it was my third try. And I, I decided to move on. And I was only 20, I was only 27. So I was pretty young when I quit, but my coach then August Shalna who was a longtime national team coach for USBA. Um, he said, he, he said I was going to be a coach. That was kind of his, edict <laughs> and he kept me on i had to finish school so um in 98 and 99 i ended up um getting hired by the u.s biathlon team to be the assistant coach right after quitting competing and i was still pretty young you know i was in my under 30 but i learned a lot from august in those years and i learned a lot working on my own i actually left the national team at the end of my career even though they were going to put me on i left it and went home and kind of drank what i learned about myself and that's when i had some of the, my best years as a, as a biathlete um but you know, I think I got into coaching that first year and I really, what I, those first two years in 98 and 99, and I was really tapped to like dial in the tech, try, be more of a technique coach, trying to get people to, to ski a little more forward. I was writing some articles that were semi-controversial around that time about a lot of the stuff that is commonplace today, you know, not laying, sitting back with a deep push. And, and I think that's probably where I maybe got a, a more of a reputation as a coach was talking about those te- technical issues um, in the, in the national, uh, in the national dialogue. Um, but then that was a very short lived thing. I, I, I did that for two years on, on the side of being, um, uh, in school at Middlebury college. And then, uh, when I graduated in 2000, I was hired to, um, start a development program for kids who were pretty good skiers or vice versa, or good shooters who really need to learn how to ski better. And that's like the, the, the barn sisters from Durango were part of that group. And I coached that group for about eight, seven or eight months, if I remember correctly, and they ran out of money, and uh, and I didn't have anything going for me, so they hired me. The Salt Lake Organizing Committee in 2000 needed a, a sport coordinator at uh, Salt Lake for biathlon, and I got hired out of uh, after the USB ran out of money to pay me. I, I kind of landed softly in a nice job in Salt at at the Organizing Committee in Salt Lake. And, uh, and, uh, I, I kind of went on hiatus for coaching there for those two years. And, and that's kind of where my commentating took off. I, I started, I did the PA, uh, for the world cup events and for the Olympics for biathlon and a couple of the cross country events at Salt Lake. 
Um, and then after that, after Salt Lake was over, I didn't really know what to do. So I moved back to Duluth, got my real estate license, and started coaching high school running at uh, the Marshall School in Duluth. Did that for four years, and then um, St. Scholastica decided they were going to start a cross-country uh, NCAA ski program, which I thought they would do it wrong and do it poorly, like most people try to do when they start a ski program. But they told me all the right things. I went into the interview, and, and I was interviewing them as much as they were interviewing me, and I was one of the three finalists. And uh, I kind of told them what I thought they needed to do to be competitive in NCAA skiing. And they liked what they liked what they heard and they hired me to do the job. And um, I did that for 10 years. I did that from 06, 07 to, to 16, 17. Uh, NCAA, I think 2016 was my last year as a ski coach. Okay. And you are a cross country running coach now? That's what I, yeah. At that time. So there were a couple of things. There are a couple of things I, I saw like is, is strategic for me. I, I, I haven't really made it public and this is probably the most public I'll ever make it, but I was diagnosed uh, that year with, with uh, Parkinson's disease, early stage Parkinson's. So I was getting, I was getting a little shaky and not being able to feel skis very well when I was wax testing. And um, I talked to some people, one of, one of the really great guys that has helped me out through all this is Davis Finney who was a former pro cyclist who um, lives in Boulder. I met him at the NCAAs right shortly after being diagnosed. And, um, and he told me, he told me point blank, I need to find ways to, to de-stress my life and uh, ski coaching. And everybody who's a ski coach out there knows that being a ski coach is not a stress-free way to make a living. That's for sure. So, um, you know, that wasn't the only reason there were, you know, I knew that there's this, there was a rumor of a, of an Olympic channel coming along and there are all kinds of things. And I just thought like, if nothing else, I mean, I love coaching. I, and, and one thing I should say, I should say, I didn't just, you know, scattered distance running. I, I was already coaching as a, as a ski coach here. I had been coaching several elite level runners. Um, one of them was one of the top 10 female marathoners in 2011 in the country. So I was already using some methodology that I thought was really valid and, and interesting. And, and running is always, I was a high school runner. That was the only sport I did for my high school. And, and I've always really been fascinated with, with distance running and um, the differences between that and skiing. So I, it wasn't like I just took this leap into distance running. I was already coaching runners. So um, that's what I'm doing now. I'm coaching. I've got a, I'm in my, I'm winding down my third season as the, cross-country coach at the College of St. Scholastica, and I'm also the distance track coach. So, um, Okay. Do yeah. you find that it's um, like markedly less stressful at this point, you know, three years in? Absolutely. I think, I think distance running, um, I think distance running has some inherently easier things about it that are a little less stressful. I think the, the, one of the things that I, I identified very early in my coaching career at Scholastica as a ski coach was that I felt like I could I could get a leg up on some of my um, the schools I had that had more recruiting power and scholarships that I could on day of I could probably maybe wax our team into the race a little bit more, and um, and that that became less and less true as more and more people got more into waxing skis. But just the just the the process of waxing even at a college level with pure fluoros, I mean I really enjoyed the 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 challenge of it. I liked I liked the tactics of it, but what I didn't like was the wear and tear and the living in a ski mask and touching floras all day long and and bre and potentially breathing them. Um that and and what that whole process did was it really took the 
the race day coaching out of it because in order to get really fast skis, you have to like really be committed to doing that. And it's hard to have conversations, race morning conversations with your athletes when you're really focused on getting them the best skis they can. And, and distance running doesn't have any of that. It's, um, it's, it's much, much more about training, you know, training stress cycles. It's much more about, um, identifying, you know, technique and gait and stuff like that. But it's really, I think it really is, is, uh, it's much more, much easier for me to have relationships that are meaningful with my athletes than it was as a ski coach. Not that I didn't have meaningful relationships as a ski coach. It was just easier to be a coach on race day. And, and that really, that really spoke to me and it still does. Well, that is actually really good insight. Yeah. I mean, you know, as a parent, you notice that you're like, Oh yeah, that there's a coach over there. They're just, you know, over the ski bench for five yeah. or six hours. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is one, podcast I listen to that's like a, it's a slate podcast having to do just with general sports, but they're really smart guys. And I heard you interviewed shortly after the Olympics and I was like, wow, okay, this is like, this guy, Chad is making it big time here. If he is on this, if he's on this podcast, I mean, do you remember that interview with those guys? I do. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, I had no idea that they were, I had no idea that they had, were held in such high regard. I just took the interview and gave them what I, what I could say. You know, I'm curious, you know, let's take a step back. You have been involved with a television or, or web broadcast for a while now. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, how has that changed for you in terms of time commitment and how you prepare? Well, it just changed a lot. Um, with this, with this gold pass, um, you know, I was, I've been doing this on the side and it's really ramped up since I quit coaching skiing here. Um, the last two years have been the busiest I've ever had. And I was doing probably between high twenties to low thirties shows, uh, days on air with, um, the Olympic channel or NBCSN, um, and, and then the Olympics every four years, but, um, that got ramped up this year we're doing the full, I'm doing the full IBU world cup, every event, um, the full FIS cross country world cup. We're still not in, we still don't, doesn't sound like NBC has the rights to the world championships yet. I think they're, they're asking an arm and a leg for them. So, um, that might change, but right now, um, worlds are, are not on the docket for Seyfeld, but, um, it's, uh, it, you know, that, that decision to move to cross-country running, um, it, it, as far as preserving my ability to be employed as a coach <laughs> and doing what I love to do has been a good move to, because to, I was get, getting to a point where I was going to have to choose between being a commentator or being a ski coach. And um, and uh, and even just physically, ski coaching was becoming a challenge. So it was kind of a, kind of it was pretty good foresight, I think, at this point, looking back to, to make that transition, because I still, I'm still coaching, which is what I love primarily foremost to do, but I, I do like commentating on, on skiing and making it exciting for the American public. So, um, you know, we're going to 70, I got 70 days booked at this time for NBC. So it's a lot of days. It's a lot of travel away from home. Um, I got two small kids, well, not small, uh, uh, nine and a seven year old, but, um, it, it it's busy. I, I'm going to be more in Connecticut than I'm going to be home for those th three and a half months. But, um, yeah, it's, it's changed. I think that, I don't know if it's necessarily our popularity as a sport is growing. I think with Jesse and Keegan's win, it definitely um, helped, and and there's no doubt that there's a there's a groundswell and and Jesse and Keegan and Keegan's fight with cancer and Jesse's high profile. I think the two things have very 
profound um, effects on our sport in the public eye and in, in good ways. And I think, you know, Keegan's bringing awareness to, to, to breast cancer is, is pretty big for somebody as young as her. So I think we're having impacts that we didn't even really foresee with the gold medal that was won. Um, and in, in, you know, for Keegan, it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing, but, um, but uh, her courage and, and, and where she is with her fight is, is very, it's a very profound thing that, that puts our sport and the people in it in a very positive light, I think, with, with a disease that a lot of people have to come to grips with. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like a responsibility, uh, I mean, as a conduit between the general public? I mean, there will be the hardcore fans that obviously tune in and watch. But now, right. because of all the stories you just brought up, there'll be other folks. Right. Um, you know, how do you sort of prepare yourself mentally to be like the conduit for Nordic ski culture and racing at an understandable level to your, you know, common viewer who might be tuning in because Jesse Diggins is racing? Right. Um, that's been, a, that's been probably an underlying theme of my entire career as a, as a speaking broadcaster for these sports is that, um, just to give you an anecdote, I was hired probably, it must've been three or four years ago now, but um, the English speaking people were really excited about what I do with, with, as a commentator. And, um, they brought me in to do some web cast, um, IBU based webcasting for the world, for the world feed, uh, online. And, um, you know, Max Cobb did a lot of work, groundwork to make that happen. He was very excited. And I don't know if it was a political statement or what, but, um, the European guy in charge of IBU, was like, what's so great about this guy? <laughs> he talks to people like they're stupid. Um, and, and that's exactly what, what I do. Not that they're stupid, but it's like, I talk to the viewer like they've never seen the sport. And that comes from a focus of doing that um, for the Olympic games, which has astronomically big audiences. And I, and I realize, and I've known for years that the focus to bring the commentary to to that level really infuriates insiders and people who really are sports fans. It would be like coming into a football broadcast and t talking about how, how the football is shaped and how it's thrown and how you carry it when you run. I mean, nobody does that in American football, but in order for football to get a, a foothold in, in on a European broadcast, that's probably what they need to do. And that's really kind of where I've been pull, pushed and pulled is if, if anybody has any criticisms about the, the job I do, who are people like you or people who read faster skier, I understand that. I understand that I'm not saying the things that they want to hear necessarily all the time and, and that I might be speaking down to them. But there's a, I think there's a very real need for that when it's a broader audience. When it, you know, And I think the IBU guy had a point. If I'm talking on the world feed and I'm explaining the size of the target and the wind flags and all that stuff on the IBU website world feed. Maybe that wasn't an inappropriate time to be doing that because you got to assume that the people who are tuning into the IBU website um, know their sport. And so there's always that push and pull that I have to play with. And I'm very cognizant of it. Um, I think you have to, and if you're going to do these things, if you're going to, if you're going to put yourself out there in a public manner, and you, you know, this is relatively small compared to the people on network television, uh, regularly, but you have to be you have to be good at letting the criticisms roll down your sh shoulders and just right. off, your, off your back, or right. or you'll go nuts. You know, you go nuts. You can't possibly make everybody happy. So I try to find that happy medium. I think that not making everyone happy and like 
learning how to roll with criticism is a good life lesson for anybody to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, I tell my kids all the time, I'm like, oh, read this email that someone sent me that, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, yeah. you just have to kind of have a little bit of self, just keep a little smidge of self-esteem going each morning. Exactly. Um, so from a technical standpoint, you know, I think you mentioned you have 70, you know, broadcast days um, coming up this year. You know, how do you prepare for that? I mean, what, what might that look like? Um, you know, if you can inform people of, of how you might, you know, you're looking at spreadsheets of prior risk results, names, or what have you. Um, the, the great thing about 70 dates is that I need to do less prep because you're more prep the more dates you do. If you go from race to race, you've got, uh, you've got uh, obvious and very recent um, benchmarks that you can refer to to, to fill in the backstory. Uh, it's when you have very sparse amount of time on television that, is, that you have to prep more. Um, and, and as I've gotten older and I've gotten away from um, being – more friendly personally with the athletes that I'm co- commentating on. Like in the, in the early two thousands, I knew most of the people in on the podium or in the mix of the race, you know, on a first name basis. So it was very easy for me to just announce off the top of my head and, and be very accurate in recalling what Sven Fisher did at the Olympics in nine, in 2000 or in 1998, you know, or, or whatever, or whatever the stat might be. Um, but I have to, I have to prep more now. Um, I don't know if it's just cause I'm older or my memory's getting worse. Um, I've had a pretty good memory my whole life. My, I used to be in some bands and, and, and one of my bands called me robo memory cause of the way I could just pull lyrics out of my head that, you know, so I, I have, I definitely have, have had at least in the past, a very good memory. I remember some of my brother's childhood for him, <laughs> you know, things like that. So that helps. I mean, having a, a good memory definitely is, is a big part of it. But as I get older and I, and I'm, I'm a little less connected, um, personally with the athletes that I'm commentating about, I have to prep a little more. And a lot of that is reading. I mean, just reading faster skier, or I do a lot of translating of VG. Um, you know, I'll just go on VG or, or NRK and, um, and I, I do speak fluent German. So that helps. I read German biathlon websites. And if it's, if it's something too technical, I'll just translate that as well. But for the most part, I can read the German biathlon websites and and get what's going on. Um, so those, you know, there's some, I think being the best, the best prep is being generally well-informed about your sport and knowing what's going on. And then beyond that, if you're going to refer to things, you need to have some, some, something in front of you there that is going to be accurate because uh, what a lot of people don't realize is you can't just cock off on on NBC networks and, and come up with stuff that isn't true. You know, they're going to fact check and they're going to get mad at a guy who does that and they're not going to hire you back. So you can't just, you can't wing it. So you have to prep a little bit. And if you, and if I always have the rule, if you, if you think you're going to win, if you think something's forming in your mind that you're going to say that you're not 100% sure about, don't say it at all. And and come back to it and maybe look at it look it up during a commercial break and 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 come back with it if you can. But I you know I, I like anybody has has been have been has said something wrong or I misidentified somebody. But when you have a time to f- fill in the backstory and you do it willfully, not knowing and not prepared, that's when you start getting into trouble. So you are forever at this point, I suppose. Um, you know, will be linked with the gold medal. The, you know, the team sprint gold medal in Pyeongchang from the sense of, of your here comes Diggins call. Yep. Um, 
does do you feel any added pressure now? It's like, okay, do I need to come up with zingers every broadcast? I mean, I'm just cur- curious, you know, sort of what that's done to your psyche as you think about how you might be judged, uh, you know, with each particular race call. Well, I hadn't given it much thought, but now you're making me think about it. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I mean, the, the guys pointed out that, um, that on that podcast, they pointed out even that I had, I had said, I had used some things that I had used before. And I think that I wasn't thinking of that. I mean, I, I go back and I realize that I said yes a couple of times when, when Lowell Bailey won the world championship too, cause he got in three seconds under, uh, Andre Morovitz time when he won that 20 K and, and I don't know, maybe that's cheating. I don't, I don't really know, but I don't, I don't particularly care at this point. I, I I'm going to call things the way I see it. And if I, if that gets exhausting or repetitive, then somebody younger will come up and replace me. You know, so there's going to be somebody out there who's going to, who's going to do this job when I'm done or, or even, you know, push me out of it. And I've always had the sense when I do this, that every job I do, I'm, I'm lucky. I've gotten to do it. I've gotten to do it. And, I, and I'm lucky I've gotten to, I got to call that moment. Um, and I, I've just been grateful for, for what I've been able to do. And, and I, I don't look forward that much. I just feel like, you know, what's the point? I'm going to, I'm going to try to bring the, the sincerity and honesty that I bring that I've brought in the past to the future calls I make. And if, and if I get repetitive, I'll try not to repeat. I, I don't think I want to say here comes anybody anymore because <laughs> it's so overdone. I mean, people ask me to do it all the time and I refuse to, because I just, I don't want to cheap in the moment. And I can't, I can't replicate something that, that was right. really quite emotive for me. I mean, I just, it was, it was, I don't even remember it. I don't even remember it. Right. <laughs> you know, I got, I watched it the first time like, wait, I, that's not what I, is that what I said? <laughs> you know? So, you know, when, when I think when you're so personally invested from such a long period with, with a love affair with a sport, and then that a moment like that happens, that you you kind of go into another place. And I think I kind of did, and I, I I probably won't go there again because that that moment's passed. Do you you know to kind of bring you back to the moment of that race? I I mean. I remember, you know, be like every day you'd have, folks in the mainstream media would show up. Is this going to be the day? You know, is this the day that Diggins and Diggins was having like a killer Olympics? You know, I, at the top of my head or something, you know, like three fifth places. I mean, just steamrolling, really. And um, was there a sense on that first or second lap? I mean, I can speak for myself. I My perspective was sort of looking at that last big hill before they came yeah. around and descended into the stadium. And I, you know, you could, you could certainly tell that Keegan was really on. I mean, she oh, wasn't yeah. losing yeah. any ground. So, you know, so what was, what was your sense about like, Oh, you know, this might be a moment. Um, I knew pretty early on. I, I didn't know we, I didn't know they'd win. Um, but I was pretty sure they would. Uh, I knew, after the semis, I watched the semis. We called the semis for NBC. I don't know if anybody even remembers that we called the semis for NBC, but we, we did. Um, and when, when I looked at the results and I saw the performance, first of all, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out. The reason I thought that they were going to win is because th- th- that was an event custom made for those two people. Um, Jesse Diggins is a 5k freestyler. She in, and the closest thing to a 5k freestyle besides the 5k freestyle, which really doesn't exist as an event is the team sprint. It's, it's going hard and recovering and going hard and recovering. And Jesse Diggins is the best in the world at that event. Freestyle team sprint. 
And Keegan Randall was coming into form and she's one of the best sprinters of all time. And she's experienced. And I just felt like uh, when I watched that semifinal and I looked at the times, I mean, they, they gapped, I think it was 13 seconds. They were faster than Norway's quarterfinal or semifinal time. And when they, and they look comfortable. So if they're 13 seconds up on Norway and they're right there with Sweden to win the semifinal, they're going to win the final. And, um, but why I knew it was going to happen. I mean, I wanted to see Keegan's last lap, but I, when Jesse went on the second lap out of the stadium, her middle lap and that search she put on that kind of made Stina hurt a little bit. That's where I knew because I felt like, okay, Keegan's got one more lap. She's not going to lose more than, you know, worst case is five seconds. And if Jesse can do that to Stina, that five seconds is not surmountable for Norway or Sweden. And, and, and then I, and then I started wondering when they came down the hill into the finishing stretch and Stina was ahead of Jesse, I was like, Oh, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe I'm wrong. And that's, that's where I think the here comes Diggins really was, it wasn't canned because it was in question. And, and you know, if Jesse, it would have been far less exciting if Jesse had led down there and led all the way to the finish. But the way she did it is the way she wanted to do it. I found out later. And, uh, and it was an extremely exciting way to win win the first gold medal for the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty pretty special. I was just I, I was oblivious to any sort of. I don't think I ever watched any NBC coverage. I don't think until I got back, uh-huh. um, and then heard. I think I heard your call or heard about it probably when I finally got back home. Um, I don't recall, but. Yeah, I was sort of in a, as you probably can imagine, in like a media void. It was it was a pretty weird kind of surreal, surreal night. I mean, we were in in the booth and we called that race, and I let off a huge scream after we went off the air, and um, they actually edited it back in because the mics were still open. They edited it into a highlight reel that scream that I did after the finish. It was it was kind of surprising that they do that, but they clearly liked what I did. But, oh, you cool. know, I, I left the, I left the, you, you get done with a call, you kind of talk about it with the crew that was there, and then you step out into a soundstage that's black and deathly quiet because it's all foam insulated. And there's nobody there. And, you know, I got an ovation from the sound techs at the end of the end of the hall. Oh, which was cool. really cool. That was about a, there were four of them, and they said, they just said great call. And I, I was a little worried it was over the top. I was a little worried I was being a homer, but I was assured by my producer that it was great. And I went, you know, went packed my stuff, went home, went to sleep. And um, about nine thirty the next morning, it started my phone just started buzzing, and it did that for about four days. So it was pretty cool. That is cool. And that's all based out of Stanford, Connecticut. Is that right? The yeah, production? I was in Stanford. Yeah. Yeah, I was in okay. Stanford. So, yeah, dude, I think a, we called that at two in the morning or something like that. That's about as far away as you can get in the East Coast from like good Nordic skiing, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it's not well, it's it's not like we're it's not like being at the event, that's for sure. Well, anything else you want to add and people will find you calling on the you know, and I know I've got tried to get this straight. So it'll be streaming. You'll be streaming your broadcast. Our calls will be streaming on the NBC Gold Pass, which is online. Yeah, that, I, so I don't know. Like, you you should almost call NBC and ask them um, because I, I they, they don't really share that with us. All I do is show up, and I and I do. If I'm involved, it's going to be a produced show. They're not going to put me with a microphone on the internet. That's not what NBC does. Like they don't they don't they don't do even what Eurosport. Does or, or any of these other streaming things, they just don't do it. They, they, if they're going to use 
commentators, they're going to make it into a show for American television. It's going to feel like an American TV show. And the reason they're doing that is they're trying to normalize it. They're trying to normalize the expectation of an American audience is that you're going to be, it's going to look like TV. And I think that that's, that's probably what's going to happen. But as far as the gold thing sounds like it's, it's on demand. So like once it's, it's out there, you can get it and you can watch it whenever you want, which is honestly for be, being in the continental United States compared to continental Europe is actually pretty cool. Like you can, you can avoid you know, getting up in the middle of the night to watch and avoid the media, the social media, and then watch your show when you wake up at nine in the morning or whatever. It's, it's actually kind of a cool thing. And, and I do know that most anything that I'm doing is going to air on one of the two networks, NBCSN or Olympic okay. channel. And that's like a subscriber so, cable. Network. Yeah, that's yeah. cable. That's cable. That's, that's what NBC, you know, I mean, the gold thing is kind of mo- moving into mod- modernity yeah. For, yeah. for these guys, for, for NBC. And, and that's kind of, I think everybody realized that that's where things are going, that the mobility piece is really important, but it's still really routed. The whole thing is rooted very much in traditional um, television broadcasting feel. Uh, that's what NBC, at least as far as I, as I've ever worked with them, I've never done anything kind of like, I did world biathlon championships once by myself on NBCSN or, and, and, um, what used to be WCS. Uh, yeah, I don't remember what they call it. Universal sports when it was universal sports. Right. There's been so many iterations. Yeah. And, and that was like literally the only time I think anybody in Colorado at that place had ever done a show with one commentator, <laughs> you know, cause it's just something you don't do. And, um, right. And, Hard to develop chemistry when right. it's and just they did that you. Because Biathlon wanted to buy the time and, and air it, and all the, that's what they were going to do. They're just going to have me do it, and I did it. And I played the. It's hard though, being 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 the color and play by play all by yourself. It's uh, it's not a fun way to go. Well, thanks for your good work, and um, yeah, thanks. and thanks for your time, and um, yeah, yeah no really appreciate it. So I've I've wanted. For, I have to say, right, like thanks. since I heard that podcast, I was like, why aren't I talking to this guy? You know, it's just. Took me a bit, but I appreciate you making the time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for listening, and we hope you find yourself on snow soon.